Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrithnach. Still trawling blacklisted books for smutty tidbits to share with you all. All of this is made possible by lovely Patreon supporters like Kira O'Sullivan. Thanks for signing up. There are links in the show notes if you would like to do the same. This episode is about Valley of the Dolls, one of the most popular fiction books of the 20th century. In fact, one of the biggest sellers ever. By 2016, it had sold. 31 million copies. 31 million. It's breathtaking. Since the day it was published in 1966, it has been walking off the shelves. Everyone read it, except, of course, Irish people. The censors banned it in March 1967, so there might have been a few copies circulating from the year before when it was published but any public libraries would have had to pull their copies from the shelves after the censors issued the prohibition order. The publishers did appeal the ban in 1971, but the appeal board wasn't having any of it. So it wasn't legal to sell this novel in Ireland until 1980, which is fucking unbelievable. Millions of people everywhere had read it by the time it hit the library shelves in Ireland. This is a pretty good example of the censors banning trashy mass-market women's fiction. And when I say trashy, I don't mean it as a bad thing. Just because a novel isn't highbrow, up-its-own-arse literature doesn't mean it shouldn't be read. Or that it's not culturally significant. Jacqueline Suzanne wrote a fictional expose of Hollywood stardom that people were still reading decades after it was first published. That's a major achievement. It was so wildly successful that it spawned two films, one from 1967 and one from 1970. It's interesting to note that the first film was shown in Ireland, even though no one could buy the book. And the second film was banned entirely. Valley of the Dolls and its cultural spin-offs produced a whole history of censorship in Ireland. Just that one book. If you're not one of the millions of people who've read it, What's it about? Valley of the Dolls tells the story of three women in Hollywood. There's Anne, a beautiful, well-educated New England girl who arrives in New York looking to make her fortune. And she's pretty much the main character. 
Neely is a talented actress and dancer that Anne meets soon after she arrives. Neely's been on the stage pretty much her whole life. Her other friend is Jennifer, an actress of the busty blonde bombshell type. Over 400 pages, we follow the trio as they search for love and happiness in a cutthroat entertainment business. You won't be surprised to hear there are many terrible men. Some of them were so bad, I thought the author was taking the piss. For example, Leon Burke. Anne is going out with him in New York until he leaves to go to England to write a novel. This quick summary can't do justice to his ridiculous posturing on his vision and his inheritance and blah blah, the usual crap. You really will have to read it to get the full effect of his awfulness. While it's often very funny, it's not all about the laughs. Joining me to unearth the darkness within the novel is Dr. Cara Rodway of the British Library. Hi Cara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, it's lovely to be here. This is going to be some book. I can feel it. <laughs> well, it's quite a weighty tome and there's, there's a lot of good stuff in there. So what I normally do is I normally try and work out a drink that might help with the book. So for me, it took a long time before the main character that we meet at the beginning actually, I suppose, goes wild because she's a very good restrained girl. I would choose Coca-Cola, which she has to sip decorously in the midst of these wild boozy parties. So Anne's Coke at the beginning, that's what I would pick. What about you? Yeah, no, I think that's fair enough. Because I was thinking you could basically pick literally any spirit. Everybody seems to spend a lot of time hard drinking, which I think is very much a feature, frankly, of mid-century America. You think of, you know, so many examples of kind of people being completely past the point of no return before tea time with you know cocktails and whatnot so yeah i think you could just pick any spirit particularly for almost any point in the novel someone's definitely reaching for a scotch or uh you know something yeah the coke's a good idea there's an amazing line at some point where the coke's just a warm coke is described as tasting like a laxative which i quite enjoyed oh that's terrible now i won't be able to think of coke in the same way so although the book comes out in the 60s it's set a few decades earlier isn't it yeah so it, it moves through time so it starts in about 1945 so it's very much in sort of post-war new york setting uh, and then and then it travels forward so it covers a period of about 20 years which is i think actually one of the most successful parts of it because it's really a lot about aging is one of the, the sort of main theme of the book. And so being able to sort of travel through through time like that does let you see these women, you know, very much at different points in their lives. Yes, it's kind of like as if a coming of age novel started at the being of age and kept going. Yeah, very much so. And and I think it's interesting that that's what you know Suzanne chose to do because it does let you sort of I mean, terrible plot spoiler, none of these women are allowed a happy ending. If you stopped to sort of as they made it, you'd never realise what came later kind of idea. That's true. Now, I have to say, after a while, I wasn't surprised that the book was banned in Ireland. But even if I hadn't read it, it was actually notorious in America, wasn't it, for its sexual content? I believe Time magazine named it Dirty Book of the Month, which... Sounds like a great column. I would absolutely read that. I, I, I think we should all be there. You know, you're reading list for the summer, really, isn't it? It was really vilified. It, it wasn't well reviewed for it. Um, I suppose the sex, but also the drug use and the sort of the general 
and frankly kind of feeling of disaster. The whole sort of atmosphere, particularly of the sort of second half of the book, it's, you know, it's just a series of really sort of broken people. Um, Suzanne herself really rejected that label of dirty and she did write a piece called My Book is Not Dirty, which is a, a kind of short report. And it starts, so many people seem unable to differentiate between the words shocking and dirty. Truth is often shocking. It is not dirty. Life is shocking at times. It is not dirty. Her take on it was that she was, you know, holding the, you know, the artist's mirror up. She insisted that, you know, something in print, quote, is dirty only if it's used for purient reasons, if it's inserted without necessity to develop a character or plot. So she very much felt that it was important to handle, handle this because this was the world that she wanted to expose and that she wasn't doing it for, as she said, purient reasons. But that was very much missed by many reviewers who just, you know, that was all they saw. And I mean, I think it, it's not the most literary of books. It had some really kind of creaky dialogue. Uh, it's got some slightly strange relationships. The bit where Jennifer marries the man who she doesn't seem to realize has some kind of serious sort of mental deficiency. I'm like, well, how did we get to the point of marrying him and not like know that? But what it really does have is plot, you know, that's actually what still makes it very readable. I don't know if you found that when you picked it up, but it does, you know, it rollicks along. <laughs> I definitely found myself at times being like, I can get to the end of the chapter, you know, what happened? You can understand why, you know, to your major critics, it was kind of crummy. But at the same time, I think one of the reasons it was, I assume, so successful is that it does have this wonderful kind of curtain twitching element, which is, you know, who are the real celebrities it might be based on? And I think that would definitely be one of the one of the factors, I think, that led to its success. It's excellent sales figures. I did wonder sometimes, I was like, oh, they're actually, I know they're talking about some juicy bit of celeb gossip from the time, but I have no idea who it could be. <laughs> I'd love to know. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure, obviously, for, for readers at that point in the mid-60s, a lot of it was a lot clearer. And I'm sure we... Um, readers decades later, if you say, you just, you're not quite sure what sort of innuendo, that's what that's pointing to. I mean, the obvious one is that, that um, Neely is, is Judy Garland, and you can see that very clearly, even if you only know a little bit about Judy Garland story, the fact that she's a successful star in her youth, and then basically destroys herself through drink and drugs. I mean, that trajectory is very kind of clearly seen in, in Neely. But there's obviously a lot of different sort of starlets you can imagine in the Jennifer role, you know, sort of beautiful blonde women with big boobs. And then similarly, you know, you've got the, the Helen Lawson character, this wonderful sort of Broadway monster who, you know, kind of just keeps on keeping on. I found her really enjoyable. She, she's completely horrible, but there's other something really fun about her. And, you know, suggestions that she's Ethel Merman and things. But also, you know, it does have some quite explicit depictions of sex and particularly of female desire, which I think, not that it always leads the women to be happy, but then being... Sort of frigid and cold is also not going to make them happy. Literally nobody wins. I'm sure that encouraged people to uh, to pick up a cold. Yes, uh, we have to see, we have to pretend then and read it with our censorship spectacles on. And it was pretty quickly that I thought, yeah, they wouldn't like that. They wouldn't like that. But I thought I would keep going until I found something definitely 
that would have caused them just to overheat and explode. And it's from the chapter we're dealing with Anne in 1945, when she's talking to her best friend, Neely. And I really loved these conversations, actually, these girly chats and you're sitting there, you know, debriefing after the day and sharing all the gossip. And like you say, there's the innuendo, but it's also the characterization of those people. It really drives the story. You want to know what's going to go on. And this was the great line from it. They're discussing Helen Lawson that great big star of the stage who uh, Neely and Anne have both met and said she was warm and friendly even before I arranged the date with Gino. She had me up to her apartment. Neely grinned. Maybe the old war horse is turning queer in her old age. Neely! It happens. Listen. Some of those big stars, especially broads like Helen, who like sex, they get so fed up with the cold shoulder from men that they turn to women for their kicks. There was this faded movie star who played at a nightclub with us and Neely, Helen is absolutely normal. And I just loved that exchange. <laughs> you know, Neely's all gossipy and like, look, you, you, this is the way it is. And Anne is still in her virtuous phase and is very much like, oh, no, don't say those things. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I mean, Anne is very much she's the sort of version one assumes of the of the writer of, of Jacqueline Suzanne, but she's also meant to be the reader's way in, isn't she? She's the sort of the slightly prudish, you know, unaware character. Who would you say we then? You know, we're meant to follow with her as her eyes open. And yeah, there's many examples of her being sort of shocked or surprised, you know, by by what she sees. But I I do think that sort of suggestion that gayness exists and the fact that like it might just be how people are and just that how life is you know obviously some of that meant to be sort of wrapped up particularly in kind of some new york theater milieu but you can see why i think particularly for a number of gay readers it was also quite exciting because i mean obviously to us it reads the language reads horribly i mean there's plenty of examples of really homophobic language which just don't sit right i mean to the modern ear but you realize that actually you know the fact that you know that, that, that <laughs> there, there appear to be Gay people living their lives and maybe working in musical theatre. Uh, that I think is where, and often given that, you know, frankly, as a, you know, as a, a gay person in the 50s or 60s, you would, weren't offered a huge plethora of opportunities to see yourself reflected in any sort of even remotely positive way. I thought that did sort of appeal to, to gay readers. But one of the, the bit you talk about lesbianism, that I was actually really quite surprised that this is about midway into the novel. So this is Jennifer, the, the busted starlet who lines about her age. And she's basically cut all these years off her age by just not mentioning that she spent multiple years in, in Spain having a lesbian relationship. And so this is, yeah, Jennifer, December 1945, and she starts reflecting on Maria, who is the woman that she met in finishing school in Switzerland. And actually, the description of the relationship with Maria is lovely. Like, it's actually really quite tender and sort of sensuous and remarkably sort of positive for a popular mainstream book that felt quite you know and you say trying to read it with your you know the census eyes you know 60 years ago that i thought felt quite exciting and is that your favorite example of subversive content or do you have one that you just can't resist oh i mean there were so many sort of campy silly bits kind of in terms of being quite affecting i thought that actually i rather like jennifer she does come across as the most likable of the three women i don't know if you in, if you felt that when you were reading it, but that was certainly, I don't know if that was, that was my feeling. Yes, I think so, because she 
isn't especially naive. She's quite pragmatic about both her physicality and the roles that she should take on because she's this busty blonde and what she needs to do to stay working and to stay relevant. And like you say, although Anne is the vehicle for most of the novel, she is very much standing apart and she's kind of explaining this world to us, whereas Jennifer is, you know, just in it. As a reader, I found Anne, she meant to be sort of this cold and prim New England character. And I thought that slightly dogged her through the book. And also, she's making such truly ridiculously bad decisions. You're having it sold to you from the beginning that she's, you know, just finished her, her degree at the fabulous university and she's super smart. She just uh, doesn't see the giant neon plot signs saying, do not fall for Lionberg. He's clearly going to love you and leave you. It, yeah, everybody is telling you not to. I, I, I got a bit frustrated with her, but, but Jennifer, I thought, yeah, it's certainly painted with a bit more of a, she's quite self-aware. It, you know, I actually thought her kind of demise, that whole sequence was, was really very really sad when she had the, the cancer diagnosis treatment. And obviously when you know that that the author, the Japanese Suzanne, um, had breast cancer for many years and that's what eventually kills her. It's you know, kind of poignant thing. But uh, yeah, I, just, I just thought that was all quite well done. The sequence of, of Jennifer escaping from the hospital so she can go and commit suicide. It was really quite apparent. One of the things, isn't Jennifer the character who goes for her sleeping cure where she gets kind of put in a coma or something and she wakes up 10 pounds lighter? <laughs> I mean, I'm literally, I cannot work out if that's true. I can't work out if anyone ever did it. You know, Inspector Google is not helping me with this one. I did give it a good look. I was like, come on, surely nobody ever suggested that it would just knock you out <laughs> for a week. You'll be thinner when you wake up. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost like a kind of bizarre parody, except that that's not totally the tone of the rest of the book. So I, I don't know, maybe some quest doctors somewhere in, you know, Central Europe where where, where William was out in the <laughs> It's the cryogenic kind of chamber of its day. It feels like that. it feels like the the rumors about Michael Jackson sleeping in the tent and it it absolutely wacky. Definitely, definitely. So yeah, I've I've unfortunately I have I have nothing to offer in terms of kind of, you know, historical certainty about that one but but it's certainly it's very attractive to anyone who's ever thought about you know weight loss yeah that was quite strange but i suppose in the context of all of the medical interventions that the women are undertaking on themselves both professional and personal and then the kind of in-betweeny self-prescription yeah no, definitely. And, and I think actually that sleeping cure bit actually happened immediately before she goes to have plastic surgery. So it's all sort of part of this, this remaking of her to take off the hidden year before she goes back to Hollywood. But yeah, it's definitely part of the same theme. It is remarkable because when I read it first, I didn't realise what dolls meant because I skipped the preface. I hadn't really read the Wikipedia entry, I was like, okay, it's a really big book. It's really famous, massive popular cultural hit, banned, great, read it. And so I read it blind. And I was some way into it before I went, dolls. Oh, you mean pills? <laughs> no, and I, I agree, actually. And I think, yes, I, I like you. I think I had I had absorbed a lot of the, of the, the kind of cultural stuff around it without having fully comprehended, actually. Like dolls are slang for women. Um, yes, I agree. And it's, and it's interesting, isn't it, how the, how the pill pop thing really kind of creeps in. It's definitely not set up right from the beginning. And 
I mean, is this vision of drug addiction unusual? I haven't read as many books from the 60s, I suppose, as the interwar period, but this level of uh, drug abuse, it's kind of unusual in the reading I've done so far. Yeah. And I think that sort of, if you think of sort of drug and fiction as the sort of uh, kind of category, obviously the, the literature that you think of of the 50s is very much countercultural sort of the, you know, you think of Kerouac and his barbiturates and writing, you know, the scrolling on the road, um, or of, you know, uh, junkie or naked lunch, or even, I suppose, some of the more slightly more mainstream, like Man with Golden Arm. Oh. I mean, obviously, few of those are about heroin. Um, but it's very much about people who are on the margins. And what I, what I thought was very interesting about this was that it was, it was definitely a treatment of drug addiction. That was very different. You know, these are these are people who are fated. You know, these are people at seemingly at the pinnacle of their sort of professional and personal achievement. So this isn't at all about you know somebody on on the outside, you know, having taken themselves out of society. It was it's completely reversed. And so that was, I think, what what I found interesting about it. And also, you know, that that sort of pill popping was. I mean, it's definitely not cool. Put it that way. Obviously, people were doing it, but it definitely didn't have the kind of cultural cachet of sort of like marijuana which you know through the 50s 60s and then also then of course into the 60s when you get you know the other sort of manufactured drugs like lsd and it's yeah it's very interesting i'm sure one can sort of pack it a bit more thinking about you know the even drugs associated with women and what you know what that means so i think yeah there's you know this is you know what the rolling stones dismissed as mother's little helper you know this idea that these were drunk for, for unhappy women to you know, to help them make it through their lives. And so I think that, yeah, I definitely, there's something very interesting and gendered about it. It's also interesting that it's, it is medical and that these are, you know, as you say, these are prescribed. Yeah, what does that kind of mean? Yeah, which is definitely in a different space to the kind of, the more countercultural stuff. But it, I mean, definitely the whole book, but, it, you know, the whole project feels really interestingly in that way that the 60s doesn't really get going till 1967, you know, that <laughs> you, you can think of that sort of cultural trajectory. And, and the book, particularly, I think, because it's set in 45 and moves forward and lots of it actually set in the 50s, feels much more of that period than, you know, the sort of explosion of the sort of the and, and, you know, everything that, that would kind of come later. So yeah, it felt really sort of on the cuff. Yeah, and because it became such a huge success as a book, naturally it led to a film adaptation, which I think is brilliant because it's about film and it's about Hollywood and Hollywood want to make an adaptation. I think that's wonderful. And so it's made into two films, isn't it? There's one in the 60s and there's one in the early 70s. And I had a quick look and the um the first adaptation wasn't banned by the Irish censor, but the second one was. So can you tell me a bit about the first one? I can. And the reason they wouldn't have banned the first one is it's blimmin' boring. It's really, it's so tedious. So it's very common, obviously, in this period to have a very quick turnaround and it's very quickly put in, into production. I thought it was quite interesting that the director who directed it, uh, the adaptation in 1967, I'd also done the adaptation of Peyton Place about 10 years earlier, which of course was a hugely successful and again, somewhat scandalous book by a female author. But the, yeah, the, the film adaptation makes a very strange choice to, to not travel through time. So it's all set in a very truncated period. It's all very much in the 60s. So every, everyone is wearing very, very hyper, hyper 1967 fashion, which 
is obviously slightly hilarious. But because you don't have any of that sense of scale or sweep that we spoke about earlier, you really miss so much of the, of the journey of these characters. And so Patty Duke, who's playing the Nini character, I think she was about 20 when she made the film. And she's, you know, she's a attractive young woman and she's and she's very baby faced. She's clearly 20. And that, that, all that meaning about aging, which I said is one thing I think is most interesting, that's just all gone. So, yeah, I just, the film just strikes me. It's just tedious and it feels very old fashioned. That was what I thought was funny. And that's what I mean about the cast. So, yeah, it's just, it's just a bit dull. I mean, it's been, it's been somewhat resurrected in later years and the sort of camp classic. But I think even that, to be honest, is being a little bit generous. You have the, the actress who plays the Helen Lawson character. She does look a bit like she's doing kind of a drag queen act. There's a lot of drag queen moves. Then you get to the, to the second film, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is made three years later, the 1970s. That is actually much more interesting just because it's completely bananas. And I would thoroughly recommend it to anybody interested in <laughs> sort of the very end of the 60s, because it was a little bit like the end of the 60s had vomited on screen. It's just hilarious. Uh, so Suzanne tried to produce a, a sequel script um, for Fox, um, but Basically, it just didn't work. So the film, she didn't like the first film adaptation. I suspect partly because they ruined her book. But she, but you know, it did do quite well financially. So she did try and turn out some of the scripts, but that didn't work. So after uh, Suzanne uh, tried to produce scripts, which just didn't work, they, um, in the end, an entirely different film was made. And it was, it was scripted by Roger Ebert and it was directed by his friend, um, Russ Meyer, who is best known as the ex sort of sex exploitation film director. Um, and so in and of itself, that's already quite mad. Um, you know, having gone from this very sort of conservative, you know, slightly sort of prim first film to, to basically something that looks a bit like a sort of playboy centerfold had had a run in with some sort of psychedelic drugs. Um, and you, then you get <laughs> beyond the valley of the doll. It was written as a sort of parody of of the first film, but also of a sort of genre film more, more generally. Um, and it's about the music industry this time, and it's it's just it's completely crazy, but very enjoyably so. And that it was also extremely successful. Um, and it was at a time when the sort of studio system, the movie studio system, was was really sort of in, imperiled by the end of the 60s. It feels like a bit of a crazy, desperate roll of the dice by Fox. And they're just like, well, just give these these two guys who basically, you know, we think they can make money. You know, it's a bit like the lunatics run the asylum. And it's completely nuts. And I thoroughly recommend it. And you can screen it for free. It's on, it's on, like, the, on the internet archive. Um, and yeah, there's so many kind of... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Different strands of kind of late 60s cultures that have been pulled in and satirized. But the funny thing is, the movie's really, really well made. Like, Maya knew what he was doing. He, re- he makes a good film. Um, and then it goes completely completely nuts at the end but i but i can see why it would have been bad so it was originally given an x rating in the u.s because of nudity and violence i quite enjoy Meyer's reaction to it being given an x rating was to try and recut it to add more sex and more violence apparently they were on a tight time for a fox with let him recut so sadly that didn't happen i love the idea that you know they just couldn't cope with the uh 60s vomited up on screen the irish censors they're like nope and it's also sort of slightly commenting on um, on the Manson murders. So you end up with this, the, the, there are murders at the end, and obviously Sharon Tate, who starred in the 1967 film playing Jennifer Nor, uh, was obviously a victim, you know, in in the Manson murder. So that, 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 there's a lot of very strange kind of intertextuality going on, um, and also the lead actor who's playing the sort of Anne character. She's British and she has a truly terrible American accent. Um, she's from Bristol. <laughs> Literally, halfway through every line, her accent just falls apart. You would know immediately that she was British. I'd say even if it had been released as a film, even with cuts, I mean, because no one could read the book, would they really have gotten the joke? <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting point. I think, I think you probably would have done because you don't. It's essentially a sort of satire of kind of, of California and the entertainment industry and most, yeah, and, but it's also very sort of psychedelic and crazy. And yeah, you've got people running about in silly costumes and people dancing naked at parties and lots of, lots of drug taking. And so this is the interesting difference. Obviously, where Valley of Dolls, the novel is very much about this sort of prescription drug abuse. Um, this is much more about kind of casual drug use. And actually, interestingly, it's it's peyote that they take, which ends up in this sort of awful, murderous madness. Um, yeah, which is much more, you would think, of it like more countercultural than kind of medicalized. So yeah, it's very different in in what it in what it's doing. I love it. I love the way that Valley of the Dolls, the novel, could create a kind of a whole field of reference and tributes and homages. And as I think we were saying about both of us coming to it, knowing a little about it, but not not the whole the whole sort of story, that I think, you know, it becomes some sort of cultural shorthand, doesn't it? The book is so successful. You know, it sold about thirty one million copies by twenty sixteen. It's you know it's hugely successful. That the film, certainly the first film did very well with audiences, even if it was powered by critics, and also the the Beyond the Valley of the Doll did um, did well as well as as you know, it was made on very small budget. Although interestingly, as I said, you know that the, the the doll slang, which I think essentially Susan uh, invented, has maybe become less has held its meaning less well. Um, you know, but certainly the the dark side of the curtain kind of idea has. Yes, and it's so attractive to peek behind all of that Hollywood glamour and see the CD, you know, horror of it and how disappointing it can be as well. Uh, 
Well, exactly. And that's, I think, part of the, you know, that obviously was, is one of the motivations for the reader is that, you know, seemingly these characters who have, you know, have achieved, you know, the glittering summit of, you know, Mount Everest, as she says with the opening, you know, bit that, that, that actually it might all be terrible behind, you know, underneath. Um, you know, there's something quite, quite interesting. But also, you know, I think, you know, there's a, there's, it's always a sad, slight sad piece of Schadenfreude that, you know, Oh, these people seem, you know, they're so beautiful and that, you know, they're still miserable, but I might sort of just carry on being ordinary, at least, you know, at least, <laughs> you know, and the end, you know, I might be slightly miserable, or at least I'm not, you know, at the top myself with, you know, second or whatever. It is funny that the censors banned it because, of course, they hated that Hollywood attractiveness and they believed it would seduce people. And yet this isn't particularly seductive on Hollywood. I mean, like you say, by the end, everybody's completely miserable and off their tits on drugs all the time. So <laughs> I think we should really do the censorship bingo because I have a feeling it's nearly a full house on this one. <laughs> well, let's have a look. Yeah, I mean, there was so much in it. So, so much. So, as usual, we start with breasts. Well, yes. I mean, Jennifer is the girl with the gorgeous tits, really. That's... Yep. And there's a lot of descriptions of boobs, which is always a <laughs> slang I enjoy. One of the great... There was a great moment in it where... Is it Jennifer? No, I think it's one of someone that Anne is watching and who steps out and who's posing in front of the cameras. And it's almost like her body is kind of dislocated from herself and has become a complete object, even to the woman herself. I thought that was so good. It captured something about that celebrity posing on the carpet and that performance of physical perfection that actors are supposed to do. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, definitely. And I think all of that sort of that physicality is one thing that she captures pretty well in the novel, this idea that, you know, that that one thing you can't outrun is time and that, you know, that that's sort of the aging process, the sort of the fear of the of the bosom dropping, drooping. Yes. And still reads as kind of sinister today. Yeah. So we could definitely tick breasts anyway, both for pert and sagging ones. Or fear of sagging, even if they never actually make it. Because <laughs> you get the knife out to keep them up. So we took that. And then bestiality. Well, actually, I didn't think there was any. No, I, I was racking my brains and I couldn't remember any. I think this might be the only one that we don't get to tick. Right. None of that. Uh, sex work. Well, this is interesting, isn't it? Because this is very much the sort of grey area. Because there's certainly a suggestion that these women are using their body for gain. And certainly that Jennifer particularly has, you know, selected a number of sort of wealthy, you know, quote unquote boyfriends. So, you know, she gets the, the, the fur coats that she can sell and, you know, she's sort of making money for her mother, grasping mother back home. Um, so I think in a, in a sort of, in a, in a broader understanding of kind of commercial exchange, and I mean, frankly, they all, you know, they all sell their bodies, you know, as I say, as performers as well. But I can't, did, can you think of any specific examples of sort of prostitution in its sort of purest sense? No, I wouldn't have said so. No, but it is a lot of the sexual relationships are very transactional. Like even the ones that Neely describes other stars having are about transactions and money and success. So. I mean, I think we could take that really. It's, it's certainly pointing out how 
how capitalist the relationships in a system like that can be. So, yeah. 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 And I'm pretty sure if if you were the censor reading it, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been happy with any of that. No, no. I don't think you care whether it's dressed up as boyfriend, girlfriend or client. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. We'll take that. And the next one is racism. So you were saying there is not a lot of race either in this or the film adaptation. No, I, I, and I thought that was quite noticeable given, you know, the period that was that, yes, particularly in New York in the 40s. It's not like there was nobody of color in New York in the 1940s, but I, you know, I, it certainly didn't jump out at the page. The whole thing felt very white. That was, that was certainly as I was reading it anyway. There wasn't much anti-Semitism either, was there? No, no, not particularly. Um, you know, and, and given, you know, how many sort of powerful Jewish people were in Hollywood at the time, there, you know, there would have been scope for it. But it, I, yeah, I don't, I didn't, I didn't find that particularly either. Yes. Yeah. No, I would agree. Yeah. It is kind of noticeable that there isn't the opportunity even for those kind of jibes that often happen, just a casual throwaway remark. There doesn't seem to be that in it, which is quite interesting choice from her part, I think. So the next one, well, drugs. I mean, yes, the whole... <laughs> The whole book, the whole book is about getting off your face or rather not getting off your face because it's more anaesthetizing themselves, isn't it? It's not really getting high in the sense that you might expect. No, it's, it's really about, about going to sleep initially, isn't it? That, that's really what was a motivating factor is for the, the pill popping. But it's definitely, yeah, it's not hedonistic in that sense. I think that, and that's what I think I was trying to get at. And when we were talking about the difference between perhaps the two of Countercultural, broadly understood sort of treatment of the drug use. No, it's more relief than anything. And then the next one is politics. I didn't notice any major politics, was there? No, I mean, the, the character who Jennifer is hoping to marry right at the end of her storyline when she is, is um, diagnosed with cancer is, is a politician, he's a senator. But no, in terms of sort of, you know, political commentary, yeah, that's actually very absent. I mean, I think you have to infer a lot of it, as we were saying, around, you know, the kind of the, the transactional nature of kind of women's role in entertainment capitalism. You know, that's a, but that's very much that interpretation. Yeah, uh, it doesn't look like we can take that one. And then swearing. Well, it was remarkably clean. I thought, you know, you could have had a lot more foul language in that. And I and I, I tried to find it because there's this there's this the passage when Neely's first gone into the you know the clinic in the final third of the novel and she's having some sort of water bath treatment and she's basically locked in a bath. And it describes her as shouting these obscenities at this young nurse, you know, all these awful things. So I went back to look and I was like, I'm pretty sure it doesn't actually say any of those rude words. And it doesn't. It it just it literally describes that. When Suzanne was saying, you know, it's not, it, you know, it's not purient, you know, that actually keeping her language clean with the part of her pitch around that. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, we can't take it, I'm afraid. And then infidelity. Well, yeah, I mean, pretty much all of the time. There's a lot of that. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Crime. Now, I think that's also not pregnant. I think that there was, there was a lot of amoral behaviour, so... You know, there's that sort of opening in the opening sequence and witnesses the sort of machinations to get rid of the successful sort of juvenile star in the Helen Lawson vehicle. And they basically 
it's a kind of it's a very sort of sad pincer movement done by the director and the producer to basically make the woman quit, which you know reads as, as very cruel and sort of amoral. But none of it. I don't think it. I don't know if we're meant to think that. So Anne has the completely silly in, initial storyline about falling in love with a man she thinks is an insurance salesman but turned out to be a multi-millionaire, as you do. And whether his dad has done something slightly shady because he's sort of, you know, Gino who has all the money, but it, it's very much, yeah, it's not, it's not a theme. Yeah, I mean, there is a suggestion of gangsterism on the fringes, but it's not really very well developed or addressed, I would say. Yeah, and that storyline with Anne, you know, oh, I had no idea he was a multimillionaire. You're like, okay, I know they have no Instagram, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> I know, I'm honestly telling you, you never read a gossip column. I mean, telling you. Yeah, and you work in show business and you have no idea. No, I know that. You know, there, there, there are some, as much as I was saying that I enjoyed it for the plot, there are definitely some plot holes that you sort of stumble over on your, on your way through. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, we can't take crime, unfortunately. God damn it. Um, genitalia. It's definitely present because there's a lot of sex being had, but it's not, I don't think that you don't get any sort of very you know, vivid description or anything of, of genitalia. It's, it's a little bit like the swearing. It's sort of, you understand that it's there, but it's not. Yes, I, I would agree. Yeah, no, even, even those sex scenes that are quite closely described. There, you're right. There isn't actually like enough about the physical body to tick that one. I think. Yeah, yeah. Apart from the apart from the boobs, you know, you're allowed boobs, but nothing, nothing else. (laughs) Look, I think every book is allowed a quotient of boobs. (laughs) It's the rule. She definitely ran with it. (laughs) And then abortion. Now, someone must have an abortion at some stage, don't they? They do. In fact, Jennifer has, I think, seven or eight. Um, you know, there's there's definitely an understanding that, you know, this sort of world of starlet, you know, unwanted pregnancy is a risk. Uh, and so that that definitely runs through. I mean, the, the most obvious part when abortion is discussed is, again, around this slightly, very sad, but also slightly mishandled plotline about Jennifer married the singing star Tony Pollard, who um, it turns out had some sort of genetic abnormality it's really really a bit like the, the genitals and the swearing it's left quite opaque and it's exactly what this is but there's the suggestion that the the baby may may inherit a degenerative disease and so um jennifer goes for an abortion um but it's actually described actually and again to, to really upset the senses as quite a straightforward process she you know they they knock her out she says oh it's not it felt it's not you know felt even better than a second or and I woke up and it was all over. And in two weeks, my waistline had gone back to what it should be. And I was back at work, you know, and it's actually very, um, it, yeah, it's actually handled with a, with a certain kind of laissez-faire, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of E. And then, yeah, it does, does explain later that she's had, you know, over the course of her, her life, many abortions. Um, but that's, that's definitely not what she's killing herself. <laughs> no, it's because, you know, she's going to die of cancer and she doesn't want to do that. Yeah. Yes. Right. So we can tick that. Brilliant. Orgies. See, this is a difficult one because I don't think there were like... No, you have to, you have to wait till Ross Lyon gets his hands on it in 1970 because the Viola Valley of the Dolls definitely has orgies in it. Um, but no, they're definitely, it, you know, in many ways, the sex is quite prim in Valley of the Dolls and Norfolk, I think. So there's definitely no, I don't think anyone 
having that level of excitement. No. I mean, they are, you know, bouncing around between the beds, but they are doing that in a coupledom sense. <laughs> Can't take that. Sexual assault. I mean, there is, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I think that there's, you know, there's certainly a sort of suggestion of the power dynamics. Um, and there's also the, um, what we assume is anal sex, um, which happens with Jennifer and Tony. Um, and she, clearly it's not totally consensual in the way that it's written. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Yeah. And extramarital pregnancy. Well, yes, Jennifer and her many abortions. Yes, take that. Uh, masturbation. I didn't think so. No, I didn't either. And I, I think, um, which is a bit of a wasted opportunity, but there you go. <laughs> so some of it is meant to be about kind of awakening female pleasure, um, you know, particularly say to the Anne. But that definitely wasn't explored. Masturbation wasn't. Yeah, that Anne storyline about awakening female pleasure. And I was a bit not impressed with that storyline overall. No, it's just, it's definitely handled rather oddly. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't fancy anybody at all until I am literally rendered incoherent with desire for the worst man in the universe. Okay. Is that progress? <laughs> I think she would have been better off asexual, you know? Possibly being cold and frigid and just getting on with her career, but there we go. Right. Uh, sex toys. I can't remember any. I don't, I don't think they're reassumed. They don't contribute towards the development of the character, you see. Well, there we go. It would have been period. Best to leave them out. Yes, sadly. Feminism. See, this is an interesting one, isn't it? Because... Sometimes you think it is a story of female empowerment and then you're like, I don't know, I kind of not sure. No, definitely. And I think that's one of the reasons why I mean it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you sort of you do find yourself thinking perhaps a lot of things that came after needed this kind of book to lay the groundwork. Yeah, because it just it just you're quite right. It it oscillates it re- and you're left quite confused as to exactly the level of sort of female empowerment, you know. You know, ultimately, a lot of their motivations are about finding a man, but at the same time, not totally. And then there's definitely a suggestion that it should be a sort of a choice and pleasurable. But yeah, so, it, you know, you definitely, and, and you know, some really nice bits of that kind of career of fulfillment and actually wanting to sort of make something of your life yourself. But then often those plot lines seem to get slightly derailed by the, you know, the period then. Opposite need for men. So yeah, it, it's quite hard to tell. This is why I feel, you know, the book is quite interesting as a sort of 1966 sort of cultural object because it does feel sort of sat, you know, in that sort of cusp between like, the sad buttoned up 50s and then sort of the women's movement of the 70s. It definitely feels to be sort of on that, yeah, on that cusp. You know, the fact it was a successful female novelist, you know, that that sort of stuff feels worth celebrating. But yeah, it's definitely, you definitely feel yourself unsure at the end if you can sort of say for sure this is definitely a feminist text yes i suppose what is feminist about it is even if the women are unfortunately obsessed with shacking up with men that they are the central characters and that the men are the ancillary adornments to these women and the most important relationships are between the women between anne neely and jennifer Yes, no, no, that's that's very true. And actually, in in lots of cases, the men, yeah, do feel do feel secondary. You're quite right. Um, and even if sometimes those plots 
you know, and the relationships between the women feel a bit odd. They are still, as you say, the driving force. And actually, you know, those are the, you know, the conversation, um, yeah, that they have with each other, you know, certainly kind of structure the, the book. I'm just, I'm trying to find a quote I quite enjoyed. Simon Doonan wrote a, a little piece about how much why he loves the book as part of the, the 50th anniversary. And I, I just, I thought it was quite nice. As he say, he said, uh, the character, the fully drawn, I mean, we could debate. So the character's fully drawn and the explosive outburst, the sizzling dialogue leave you feeling as if you've just been spanked with a feather boa. <laughs> Which I quite, I quite do. And there is definitely some of that, like that quote you read earlier about the kneeling and the goth there. Yeah, I think uh, cultural phenomena like uh, Sex in the City owe a lot to this novel and the sort of narrative it created around women, friendship and work. Oh, and, and, and also, you know, that sort of, you know, the, the image, you know, through the 70s and, you know, particularly the 80s of the sort of female bulkbuster author you know that definitely owes a lot to you know to Suzanne and her success and you know and you know she's one of the writers he's credited with developing the idea of the book tour for example you know she was married to a publicist and she really you know she really put a lot of of stock in publicity and I think she she had a like a little index system with the details of of, you know of major sort of booksellers and she'd like make a note of their like kids names and stuff and she'd write little notes say that well, thank you. you know, it'd be so lovely to come through when next time they're in Cincinnati or whatever, you know, I'd love to come through. And, you know, so she, she really understood about, you know, kind of engaging in the marketing process, engaging with the sort of commercial um, and with her audience, which I think maybe if we're thinking of sort of feminist outcomes, you know, there's certainly something about the sort of savvy businesswoman in there as well. Um, but you're right. I do think it's it, it laying the groundwork for, for things that you see blooming later. Yeah, I suppose it kind of just about nudges over the line for feminists, like just about. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. And divorce. Yes, people are obviously divorced. Contraception. Do they talk about Johnny's or pills or anything? Don't think so. Oh, God, I thought they must do. No, it definitely didn't jump out for me in a way that would have made me think, you know, a Catholic censor would be enraged here. Yeah, it's 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 funny. It's although it has sex in it, it you know it only comes to the surface sometimes. It isn't as explicit, I think, as you feel it is when you're reading it. You're like, oh, I feel this is filthy, and then you're like, no, maybe not. <laughs> and menstruation? No, I didn't think so. Or was there? Well, the, the one thing I was thinking with well, this was was just because I looked it up. The the section I talked about earlier about Jennifer and her lesbian romance so her her paramour maria um she describes having had to have an abortion and then she had to have a hysterectomy as a as a result of peritonitis um but it was wonderful i'm no longer bothered with the monthly period and to jennifer wants to say she was sorry but she couldn't offer sympathy to a girl who regarded the incident as a stroke of marvelous luck <laughs> well at least you've got everything settled she said but i still have to return to cleveland anyway <laughs> okay we can ticket for that i think any mention is is worth it (laughs) and then blasphemy well i mean the whole thing is absolutely like obscene for the religious but i don't think it's actually blasphemous (laughs) no and i definitely religion really didn't feature i think particularly as a a theme there's no sort of you know nobody has to convert because somebody's of a different faith or you know sort of you know someone going to go to hell because of this immoral life they're living it it definitely you know that a lot of the 
the characters seem to have a sort of moral code, um, which is disrupted by different things, like I was saying about Anne and the, you know, watching the sort of the, the machinations about getting rid of the actor, the actress. But no, I don't remember. I don't remember anything, you know, God being dragged through the dirt. I don't think so. I think God is just not even considered. Then we have oral sex. Well, yes, there was, wasn't there? Someone drops to their knees very dramatically. Yeah, they do. And that's very much meant to be sort of casting couch sort of image. Um, it's, it's when, um, I think is it Neely's being removed from a production, I think possibly. Anyway, and you then sort of cut to the studio executive, you know, eventually about to get a blowjob from the starlet if he's going to give the, give the job to. Um, but there's also a description of, Oh, which of the characters? Again, no, Neely talks about her first husband, Mel, um, giving her oral sex, which again shocks Anne. Neely? <laughs> and she's like, what? No, I came. It was great. And she's like, no. I don't do that in New England. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really unusual to be able to take this box, I have to say. It doesn't feature in many, many texts. Oh, well, okay. Okay, well, that's quite exciting. I've it's an achievement to value the doll. Go, Suzanne. Yes. <laughs> right, we can tick that. Uh, graphic violence. Not so much, was there? No. No, I don't think so. Again, you have, you have to wait for Ross Meyer to turn up when people are getting beheaded. <laughs> well, that was banned, so sadly no one got to see that either. <laughs> and then the final square is LGBTQ+. I think so. There are numerous references to all sorts of characters who come through the novel. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as I said, you've got the description particularly of, of Jennifer's of lesbian period. And there's many, many gay men referred to kind of by the F word. There's a suggestion that Neely's husband is at least bisexual. Um, you know, yeah, then definitely, uh, uh, you know, it's a world in which gayness exists for sure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so let's count it up then. Only 12. Only 12 out of 25. I'm a bit disappointed. Oh, I know. I'm, I'm sorry. I know you, I could feel your hope that we were going to, we were going to have a high scoring, a high scoring outing. Yeah, but it feels dirtier than that, I have to say. <laughs> well, that, that's obviously what, what Jacqueline Thielen got frustrated about with that, you know, that it, it, you know, that people hung on to that rather than, you know, her insistence that actually she was telling a sort of angry story. And that, I mean, I, that's definitely one thing that I think that did come away for me as well. That was definitely whilst you could, you had the feeling of this kind of sort of sexy book. Definitely what I think I took away with, it's also very angry. And that definitely, you know, that's, I think, kind of, you know, why it's still quite readable is that actually the sort of, you know, even where the plotting is a bit shaky or the dialogue's a bit crap, you know, the passion that she kind of has for these women and sort of the way that, you know, also it almost feels like they can't make any good choices. You know, all of the cards are always stacked against them, even though they make some really poor choices. Yeah, as you said, I, you know, I can't, you, you definitely don't get the feeling that it would all have been fine had they just, you know, got left rather than right. Because like, you know, it's sort of, you feel like it's always going to not work, which is, yeah, it's quite, it is quite some grim when you get to the end of it. Yeah. I don't know how, what were you sort of left with when you finished it? Well, just thinking of those kind of 80s bonkbusters or 70s bonkbusters, like when you read Jackie Collins now, yes, there's lots of bonking in it and, you know, genitalia and all of that. 
but it has nothing else left, I think. And it, they didn't age well at all. They're kind of dull to read now. Whereas this, although it's way longer than Jackie Collins, it has that, that story about the, the aging and then the need to take the drugs and the failures of people's relationship are real. They're not just a joke. And I think that it is the darkness is what keeps that book relevant today. Yeah, no, I think you're completely right. But yeah, that's a good, a good summary. And I think I'd much rather read this than a, you know, than a Jack and Collins for sure. Any time, even though it's like four times longer, I would read this any time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cara. That was just a great chat about um, an unexpectedly interesting novel. Indeed. Well, thank you so much. It's been it's been lovely. Thank you. I enjoyed that rollicking Hollywood saga very much, but it's all changed for the next episode. I'll be reading a novel by Walter Mackin, a widely read but perhaps not very literary Irish writer. It's called Quench the Moon, and it's set in the wilds of Connemara, which couldn't be more different to Valley of the Dolls. Till then... Keep your hands clean and your minds filthy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.